This episode is sponsored by Makersite. Find out how fully automated digital twins and the world's largest supply chain database help you decarbonize your supply chains. For more information, please visit makersite.io. And this episode is sponsored by Meta. Check out their third annual sustainability report that just launched. It shares progress towards Meta's goal of achieving net zero emissions across their value chain in 2030. For more information, please visit sustainability.fb.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, IDEO and H&M teen up to design in sustainability, why the HIG index is poised for a makeover, the growing interest in smaller banks, and why it's high time for cannabis to embrace sustainability. We're smoking this week on 350. It's July 22nd, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Heather Clancy's off this week, so joining me from Brooklyn, New York, is Green Biz Senior Analyst for Sustainability, Dylan Siegler. Hey, Dylan. Hey, Joel. Great to have you with us again, once again, here on 350. Um, wow, lots going on in your world. Uh, fill us in. I know that uh, you have this, uh, uh, there's a conference or something next February that you're working on. That's for starters, but before then, there's, there's even more stuff. Give us a rundown of... The Dylan Siegler world as of uh, July 2022. Absolutely. We are super, super thrilled about a development in Europe. We are uh, about to launch the GreenBiz Executive Network in Europe in September. And the inaugural meeting will be hosted by Chanel at their brand new offices in Paris. And so um, if you're not familiar with the Green Biz Executive Network, um, it is sort of a combination support group and shared learning network for corporations. And we've got a, a really big, robust community uh, that makes up the GBEN world here in the US. And this is the the first foray into the European market. And um, so we are really, really excited to welcome about 30 companies to this inaugural meeting. Wow, and uh, that's a tough assignment. Who gets to go to Paris for this uh, this meeting? I heard a rumor that it might be you and me, Joel, <laughs> along with... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> along with some of our colleagues. So right. <laughs> um, we're we're really excited. We'll be making an announcement soon about our brand new hire that'll be um, really in charge of strategy for GBEN Europe. And uh, yeah, so I think that that will that's a that's a coming episode. I think of three fifty. Yep. Okay, we'll take one for the team on that one. And so, um, uh, meanwhile, I alluded to the uh, the small little event in February. This is, of course, GreenBiz twenty three. Our signature flagship, whatever event that you own. Uh, what's going on with that? Where are we in the cycle? Was I supposed to be doing something with that right now? Oh no, no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe oh. a little bit. It uh, it it may come to, as a surprise to some of our um our friends and listeners how early we start planning these conferences. It really the process really starts right after the conference is over in a given year. So, um, we went through a period of evaluation where we looked at every single survey response. And um, that helps to inform what we then put together in terms of breakout sessions and real high wattage main stage presentations. So I am currently in the process of reviewing 524 speaker proposals that we wow. received through our call for um, and I really do read every single one in some detail, um, in part because it's my first year and I want to get a sense of what our community brings to us in 
um, in these proposals, um, but also because our community also brings us some really stellar content. And so a lot of what we'll, what we'll put together may not be exactly what was proposed by those who, who proposed it, but um, we do get a lot of ideas and, and often will sort of connect dots and make connections to, to pull together uh, sort of the trends that start to emerge. And some trends that I'm seeing include a lot of focus on regenerative agriculture. I'm seeing a huge amount of focus on what the next generation of circularity might look like. And uh, really a kind of a maybe not surprising to some focus on what the mental health impacts are of working in this um, field of urgent climate crisis. So um, we'll be we'll be looking at how to incorporate those three um, along with our our typical priorities. So for the people who say this job is making me crazy, it's 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 not just an expression. <laughs> <laughs> nope, it's a reality. <laughs> So one of the things that you and I are working on for Green uh, Biz 23 next February is uh, a sort of a side event that's going to happen the, in the 24 hours leading up to the event at uh, a Green Biz Comms Communications Summit. Um, kind of excited about that uh, to sort of bring in this comms piece because um, you know particularly this intersection of of comms uh, sustainability and legal, which is uh, where uh, a lot of these, <laughs> the things that can, that sustainability people want to talk about and comms people want to talk about uh, get thwarted in the legal sense. So we're going to talk about how those three uh, come together and um, in this uh, this one one day, two half day workshop um, for uh, just a couple hundred people. So I th I'm really excited about that. Um, anything else that that you are uh, now that you own this event that you're uh, sort of thinking something different than we've seen before that you can talk about yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what we're what we're really trying to achieve is uh, uh this year is a refinement of the ways that we bring everyone together so we um we know that our our community our cohort of sustainability professionals is growing super rapidly and it used to be that everyone knew each other and we didn't have to go out of our way at greenbiz to make uh, to make introductions and to facilitate that community getting to know it, itself and um so what we're recognizing is that we do need to work a little harder to bring people together and to provide opportunities for people who aren't already part of the fold and haven't been doing this work for 30 years to um to really meet those who have so um i think the audience should look out for all of the ways that we're going to do that this year and it should be a huge amount of fun um and, you know, it'll also, uh, I think, appeal to those um, those stalwart green biz attendees who um, who've been with us forever. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we'll continue to do that. Uh, well, that's a great look ahead. Thanks for that, Dylan. And but let's look back now at the Week in Review. <laughs> Well, let's start off where the money is, as uh, they used to say, in banks, and particularly uh, sort of sm smaller mid-market banks. We have a piece uh, that we ran this week from Henry Kronk, who's the carbon markets editor at Opus, which is part of the Dow Jones family, um, talking about mid-sized banks and, and how they're embracing sustainability uh, a little bit differently than, than the big guys. Um, and, uh, you know, with all due respect, I know Dylan, you and I have both have good friends at, uh, City Wells, B of A and Chase and, and others banks, but, uh, there's, uh, you know, they're under a lot of fire these days and there's a whole, a whole swath of, of mid-sized banks with names like First Green Bank and Climate First Bank and Amalgamated Bank, uh, that are, that are stepping in saying, we're going to do things a little bit differently. And then one here based in Oakland, a beneficial state bank. Um, what did you take away from this piece, Dylan? I was I was fascinated by this story, and I what I really took away is that there's kind of a coalition model happening with these mid market banks that they're really trying to work together and form uh, sort of these um, various types of organizations to to advance their sustainability goals collectively. Um, there's also a number of these banks that are becoming B Corps. And so that 
is that kind of came out of nowhere for me, which was really exciting. What I was what I was curious about reading this story is whether the mid-market banks might run into some of the same challenges that uh, our our friends at Citigroup and Wells and, and B of A run into around the pressure to divest from fossil fuels. And so, you know, we we saw this spring that the many, um, if not all of the big banks ran into shareholder resolutions around these fossil fuel investments and shareholders pretty roundly rejected those proposals um, in the kind of 11 and 12 percent um, for kind of range. There's a huge amount of nuance here that that I'd be curious to find out um, kind of in a follow up. And maybe we can get Henry Kronk to do that. Um, how the how the mid market banks are are approaching this. One of the things that our friends at Ceres have emphasized is that the ways that banks engage with the companies that they invest in is a really important part of being sustainable. So it's not just sort of what are your scope to emissions like from your bank branches, but um, but what are the rules that you're setting around who you invest in? So um, yeah, it, that was what I took away from this story. And um, I am kind of excited to think about whether I might move some of my own money into a mid-market bank that's making some of these these moves toward more sustainable practices. Yeah, and uh, GreenBiz uh, Group, our company, has been uh, banking at Amalgamated Bank, actually the predecessor called um, New Resource Bank that was acquired by Amalgamated Bank uh, since the day that New Resource opened in 2008. And it, yeah, it's been a great relationship. They they do a lot of good work. They also, you know, do things uh, beyond the traditional banking relationship. They hold seminars and workshops and and help help smaller and mid sized companies uh, move forward in their sustainability agendas. But um, yeah, the the whole fossil fuel piece, as as there's been this uh, intense pressure, a growing pressure on on uh, the big banks to divest or stop lending certain ways. Um, a lot of these banks are born with a mandate that they're not going to do that. And so uh, I think, you know, can they be profitable and do that? There's a there's a story uh, in in this story about uh, a bank that that didn't go or didn't go well. It ultimately got acquired, uh, uh, but uh, not necessarily because of, of its uh, fossil fuel uh, commitments, but just because not all these banks work as well. And, and, and out of that, um, uh, the bank got got bought and the and the CEO went on to start uh, uh, a new bank called Climate First Bank. Uh, and so it wasn't a, uh, a sad story, but it, there is a lot of, uh, of of fits and starts that I think these will go through. But speaking of fits and starts, um, let's move over to a story from Leah Garden, our climate tech reporter here at GreenBiz, on something called the HIG Index, H-I-G-G, that is uh, a, a technology and tool and set of tools actually for uh, initially for the apparel industry that uh, I think they have ambitions beyond that to help them uh, with their uh, their supply chains and and to assess uh, their the suppliers and the products uh, and and the companies themselves. And it's it's hit hit some speed bumps here. It's come come under a bunch of criticism that a lot of the the data that's going into their um, ratings and uh, is not that uh, accurate, perhaps. Um, and that also some of the ways that they judge uh, sort of synthetic fibers over natural fibers has uh, been controversial. Um, and uh, even been criticized for, and this is a quote, trivializing the amount of change that the fashion industry needs to become sustainable. That's the end of the quote. And as as we all know, the fashion industry, particularly fast fashion, has been under a lot of pressure. So Leah wrote this piece about some of the challenges that Hig had and, and asked the question, can blockchain solve some of these things by creating uh, more certainty and more more accuracy uh, and verifiability uh, on the data that that apparel companies are submitting to the blockchain, and that's and then she gets into the fact that this is hard because so many of these apparel companies have much 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 smaller little suppliers, and getting them to to uh, embrace blockchain technology may not be all that simple. 
I want to just give a shout out to our new colleague, Leah Garden, who wrote this story. She's been an incredible reporter right out of the gate. And I, what I took away from this story is that the Hig Index has run into the problem of, of many sort of consolidators of data, which is that they're easy to manipulate. And so um, it's, I, I love the idea of this new generation of digital traceability and, um, we see in the story that there are a few companies that will be more visible soon that will, I think, be able to leverage blockchain and other ways of really making sure that what's in these indexes makes sense. I think one other thing that I noticed sort of zooming out is this is part of a larger trend of scrutiny that we're seeing across sustainability initiatives where the public and stakeholders generally are saying, look, we can't, we can't fake this anymore. We're in a place of really great urgency and we need to do it right. And this whole sort of greenwash of, um, of the, of the HIG index, the greenwash uh, accusations that the HIG index came under is really, I think, part of a larger movement to tell the truth. <laughs> Tell it like it is. And, um, and let's, let's get stuff done. So um, I'll be really interested to see how technology can be a part of that. I think, Dylan, that you and I both agree that that's a healthy development. Do you think that some of this may be going too far, that the scrutiny is harsher on some of these sustainability uh, tools and technologies and companies than it would be in the non-sustainability world? A hundred percent. And yeah, I think this is this is absolutely a conversation that we have inside the sustainability professionals community all the time, which is that those of us who are really trying to move the needle inside big companies, um, whether they're banks or textile companies or whether they're coalitions um, like the ones that came together to create the HIG index, um, they really do end up sort of putting themselves out there and becoming more vulnerable to criticism. And so I think activists, it's on activists, um, I think, uh, as well as on us to to decide who really deserves the brunt of, of the criticism. One place that has come under increased scrutiny in this way is the cannabis industry, which you point out in your column this week titled, It's High Time for the Cannabis Industry to Embrace Sustainability. And so I, you know, this is a topic uh, that from my my own upbringing really brings to mind the, um, the sort of back to the land counterculture ethos that, well, as a child of hippies, um, I was I was born into. And um, that whole idea that cannabis is sort of linked to the idea, this, this sort of sustainability mindset um, doesn't really carry through as cannabis becomes a more industrial crop. Um, and so I'll, I'll, let you, uh, I'll let you get into it a little bit since it was your column. Yeah. Um, people ask me, why did you write this piece? And, you know, I said, well, there's that old adage, you know, that you talk about, write what you know. And uh, this is one thing I know about. But uh, what was surprising to me, Dylan, is how much uh, really that cannabis growing cultivation, the whole industry has sort of been given a free pass because it's seen as this, uh, you know, sort of natural, sustainable, progressive uh, product that uh, it's a natural product that has all the multiple benefits for humanity. And in fact, it's not so simple um, as we find most things in sustainability. And particularly, uh, this is uh, came out of a paper that uh, a guy called Evan Mills, who's uh, I described as an organic vegetable gardener and self-described energy geek who prefers gin and tonic to ganja. And, but he spent 40 years at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab as an as a energy analyst, senior scientist there. Uh, to talk, um, he did a paper, he's been writing about this really for a decade and, and wrote a, a recent paper um, in uh, a, a, a journal that... Um, so took the task from an ESG perspective uh, for investors because there's now quite a number of uh, of publicly traded cannabis companies or companies that that have a cannabis operation, um, saying that this isn't all it's cracked up to be. That there's um, 
the impacts, particularly uh, of indoor growing, is, is significant and needlessly so. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Some of that's just uh, either ignorance or uh, not no one paying attention. The, there's a lot of shoddy operators, as there you know has been in almost every industry, and policy issues that are you know perversely incentivize. Uh, the wrong way, unsustainable ways of growing uh, cannabis, um, and so yeah, it, it was it was fascinating to me to look at this from a, a very different perspective. What did you find surprising here? Uh, I know one statistic you've you were you had your head scratched a little bit around around cannabis is the is America's largest cash crop, um, but beyond that, what else struck you here, Dylan? Well, it seemed to me reading your column and then going back to Evan Mills' original work that the industry needs to take advantage of the low-hanging fruit that other agricultural-based industries have started to do. So look to regenerative agriculture, look to the smart indoor cultivators of other types of crops for good examples. The opportunity is obviously a big one. Um, to not fall into those same unsustainable traps that that big ag has. Um, I was interested in um, in the idea that outdoor cultivation is better, and I'm sure there are trade-offs there that our that our ag listeners could tell us about as well. Yeah, the, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I agree that, that this windowless uh, growing facilities, these uh, some of the size of, of of more than one football field. There, there are these massive mechanically controlled operations with they're controlling the temperature, the humidity, the air movement, obviously the lighting. Um, they create lighting as, as as bright as the sun, as according to the quote here. And then, of course, they maintain it based on some uh, standardized day length. And and then uh, you know a lot of this is not so benign. They're they're using an inert growing material that's called mineral wool. There's various variations on that, but that's made by mixing basalt lava with sand, limestone, and soda ash in a furnace to melt it together to make this uh, single use uh, growing material. So it gets discarded after each, I guess, each crop. Um, and then the growing trays are flooded with water-bearing concentrated artificial nutrients, and on and on. You could you, you know you could describe this uh, you know sort of in a scary way, and it may be described that way for effect. But I was uh, still struck that. Uh, but the, the problem is that uh, in a lot of jurisdictions, you have to grow indoors, even if you you know if you, if you have great climate and and fertile soil. Uh, because uh, I guess of security measures. And so um, you find these odd situations where you have in, in Illinois, for example, I think in California as well, uh, these grow houses, these massive grow houses sitting on top of fertile farmland where they could have been growing it outdoors in, in a great climate, um, but uh, have to grow it indoors. So a lot of issues here uh, with cannabis and, and as it continues to, to become this uh, massive market, I think it's... Uh, it's already uh, uh, somewhere between 150 and 200 billion dollar global industry, um, and as we said, the largest cash crop in the United States and probably elsewhere as well. Uh, this is an area that's going to require more scrutiny. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people are going to, uh, I think, need to rethink. Maybe you know that's another interesting piece. Is the consumer piece? Is how much do we as consumers need to know? And do we go into a dispensary or wherever you get your stuff and, and say, I don't want to, you know, I do want to get uh, cannabis that was grown in a certain way, or I don't want to get it from this company. I haven't seen that. And, and, and uh, that's going to be tough. And one last thing is that one of the problems with that is that because uh, there's no federal uh, laws that allow in the United States uh, that permit cannabis growing, it's done at the state level, which means that things have to stay within the state and can't cross state lines. So what's sold in a state has to be grown in a state, which means that what's available in California is different than what's available in, in New York or Colorado or, or other states. And so creating a national brand that you can, uh, you know, boycott or or patronize uh, is, is going to be tough. And you know what share of the onus are we putting on policymakers to actually really 
make the expectations palpable for these companies, whether yes, at a state level now, um, or at an eventual, we assume federal level, it, you know, if I may make a connection back to the story about banks, we are putting a lot of onus on companies on business to make these decisions that are smart on their own without um, the the benefit or the you know the the hammer of regulation so it's an interesting question uh, across across multiple industries that might not immediately seem related well lots to think about there we'll put that in our pipe and smoke it As I said, Heather's off this week, but she left behind another interview with one of this year's Women in Sustainability Leadership Award honorees. This spring, the WSLA alumni group recognized 11 women at the forefront of the sustainability profession. These leaders have made a difference by advancing new technologies or strategies, by overcoming personal and professional obstacles, and by committing to mentoring other women. They join more than 85 women who have been honored since 2014. I'm thrilled to introduce some of the latest inductees here on Green Biz 350. This week, I'm joined by Grace Kwok, Chairman and Executive Director of Allied Sustainability and Environmental Consultants Group. Her resume includes two decades of experience leading sustainability design and green building projects in Hong Kong, China, and the Asia-Pacific region. Welcome, Grace. Thank you, Hatha. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations. It was wonderful to see you on the ceremony. And I wanted to start with a question about inspiration. So what did inspire you to focus on a career related to environmental sustainability and ESG? What got you to this place? Yeah, firstly, I think I'm very lucky um, to develop a career on a topic that I'm passionate about, which is sustainable development. I think all this um, stemmed from my love for nature and a strong desire to preserve the natural environment for future generations. So in fact, um, more than 20 years ago, I studied environmental engineering in, in university. And at that time, uh, I was already fascinated you know, by strategies to achieve regenerative sustainabilities in projects and new development. So um, throughout my career, I have witnessed the evolution in the field of environmental sustainability and the recent high-speed development of ESG. So the sustainability landscape is still evolving. You know, we are um, seeing new standards, practices, and technological development every day now. And there's still so much to explore, learn, and improve. Exactly. So much going on. When you think about where you have come from and maybe and also where you're going, what do you believe has been the most important factor in your success? What what keeps you driving and leading? Yeah, I think uh, having a growth mindset and staying positive in overcoming setbacks has been the most important factor in my success. After all, we would encounter not a few failures and trying and learning in the process in our journey. So I always strive to achieve um, continued improvement and keep upgrading my knowledge and sharing best practice with fellow practitioners. And this is what drives me to earn you know, so many professional qualifications um, in environmental uh, green building and ESG fields. And also a good example um, of how I ch- uh, usually challenge myself is to extend my footprint uh, into the international arena, uh, such as joining the lead uh, tech and also the grab standard committee, etc. I consider putting myself out there as a part of growth, and it also allows me to contribute regional insights for the development of these international standards. Bringing things back to your home and bringing other things from your home to other places, that's a really great, uh, great yes, strategy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So what when do you think has been your most successful leadership habit? Right? So this is this is a that's your long-term sort of su- success view. What habits would you share with with other individuals? What's what's helped yeah. you? I always try to adopt a collaborative 
approach in leadership. There's a saying that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So uh, we always see most of the talented uh, co-workers are self-motivated and they would seek fulfillment at work. So by using uh, collaborative uh, leadership approach, I, I would uh, build teams which could work together effectively with trust and synergy. And this is particularly helpful when a strong team is needed to tackle challenges and problems together. So with this approach, um, I would encourage participation, ideas sharing and group decision-making uh, with our team leaders. We'll always have strategies meetings to openly discuss about the direction of a company. And I think this approach enabled the team leaders to play to their strength and ultimately drives the success of my teams and the company. It also helped develop a culture for innovation and changes within the company. How has mentoring the next generation of leadership changed your own career trajectory or outlook? Yes, I had gained precious advice uh, from more experienced mentors at different stages of my life. So I'm grateful to my mentors whom provide objective feedback to my work and point on my blind spots and encourage me to make positive changes. So this is the approach I have been using to guide young professionals and especially female leaders. While I was benefited from my council of mentors, including professors and other experienced business leaders in the past, it is a natural move for me to take up the role of mentors to share my experience when it's time to pay it forward. And I think um, not only the mentees would learn from the mentors, I also learn a lot from my mentees and understand more about the challenges they face in the digital age and the concerns of our younger generation on the environmental and social problems they would inherit. This has changed my perspective about intergenerational sustainability and helped me better understand and collaborate with the next generation of leadership. Thank you for those words of wisdom. I have one more question for you. It's just a final sort of thought. What advice would you give to anyone of any age pursuing a career in corporate sustainability? I think um, corporate sustainability can have a very broad scope. It could be quite overwhelming for beginners. <laughs> My advice uh, would be to start from the basic principles, build up fundamental knowledge, gain experience and exposure in areas that you would like to be specialized in, learn from best practices in different sectors, and most importantly, walk the talk. Well, thank you, Grace. Appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Heather. You just heard from Grace Kwok, Chairman and Executive Director of Allied Sustainability and Environmental Consultants Group. I'm Deanna Anderson, Senior Editor at GreenBiz, and today I am joined by Emily Coker, who is a partner at IDEO London. She has over 20 years of experience um, helping with design and also marketing. Um, and in case you're unfamiliar, listener, with what IDEO is, it's a global firm that is trying to shift the way that things are made by implementing circular production principles with some of the world's largest brands, including H&M, which is part of our conversation today. Emily, thank you so much for joining GreenBiz 350. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. All right. So you are a partner at IDEO. You've had held other roles, but I'm curious um, in your current role and other roles at IDEO, how have you uh, been working to advance the circular economy and also just like instill sustainability uh, with companies in general? So I suppose the kind of best way to answer that question is to step back in terms of kind of what I'm trying to do generally. And when I, when I say I am referring to kind of the broader set of leadership within IDEO and, and what we're, we're trying to do is work with leaders of forward-thinking companies. So companies that have either a sustainability agenda or they know that they 
have long a lot of strides to make in this particular space, but they, for example, have commitments that they haven't acted on. And we really help them reframe the challenges they're struggling with. So what does it mean to lift something off the page and fundamentally create new value? And that new value should be as much for their employees as it is for existing companies and finding ways to really balance kind of the short-term impact that they can have around their sustainability goals and kind of far-term differentiation. So we essentially propose very different ways to explore solutions using design. Um, and the aim for us is to make them not reliant on external partners. So we are successful if we can extract ourselves, if we've managed to scale capabilities, to scale mindsets, and I can talk a little bit about what that is in the context of sustainability, environmental sustainability, circular practices, et cetera. But ultimately, this is something that they need to maintain themselves. And so as a partner at IDEO, one, it's about ensuring we're working with the right leaders. We're helping to make change happen rapidly by demonstrating how these organizations can shift towards their vision. But also it's about kind of setting the conditions for our community of designers to do the best work of their lives. Many of our designers have deep, deep passion areas that correspond with what we're seeing across purpose-driven companies, companies that have strong sustainability agendas. And you know, we've been using human-centered design for 40 years. Um, so this is a way for us to look at problems and see what the tools of change can be when we look at systems, which I would say is probably the first way of answering your question is we look at systems, use that as an opportunity to help people see a vision of the future. And then we help them make strategic choices by testing hypotheses really quickly and prototyping with that ecosystem uh, of the stakeholders throughout it, whether they're influencers, whether they're buyers, whether they're policymakers, or those actually closest to the impact. Very frequently, we, we design for the people who are implementing the solution rather than the people who receive the solution. So those are some of the practices that we think about more broadly and kind of use design as a catalyst to have these types of difficult conversations um, and ultimately use it as an opportunity to design a more equitable, sustainable, prosperous world. Um, so that, that's really kind of the way that being a partner at IDEO is trying to kind of champion a change uh, in today's world where unfortunately we're living in a culture of convenience that doesn't really jive with what we're trying to do for yeah. sustainability. Definitely. Something I thought was interesting that you mentioned was trying to make sure that companies aren't like relying on third parties to kind of shift mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Can you speak more about like why that is important? Because what came to mind immediately is like thinking of companies, thinking about the scope one, two and three emissions and like kind of saying these scope three emissions are where everything is. Um, uh -huh. So uh -huh. I'm, it's not maybe not directly related, or maybe it is. No, I love that question. I love yeah. that question. There was something, um, again, listening to a podcast of yours over the weekend, there was a wonderful quote, um, and it might have been from Mark Carney, the UN special advisor, but I'm not entirely sure if it was him. But it was it was a reference to everybody talks about how difficult it is to collect scope three emissions. And yes, that is true. And uh, what he was saying was that it, they are somebody else's scope one emissions. So the focus, when I'm talking about systems, it's about understanding the complexity of the value chains to really then think about how you design responsibly for each of the different touch points, whether it's about redesigning that value chain in its entirety or identifying leaks within it that might be the best places to start, to even just demonstrate progress. So much of what we're trying to do, Diana, is really give people the confidence that they can make change happen, that you don't have to be in this mode of paralysis because you're looking to measure progress against something, but don't know how to actually view that progress or to involve people in that progress so that you're actually thinking about regenerative design from the standpoint of how we're putting real life at the center of decisions and actions and finding those types of solutions through experimentation that help kind of restore the health of individuals and communities without the reliance on these third parties. And these third parties, when I refer to them, are often the greatest polluters, right? Often you have third party agencies come in who are offering fantastic technology solutions in addition to consulting services and they leave and you're tied to the solution that they proposed. Um, and some of them will offset that with, besides offsets with kind of commitments to communities, to thinking about how you produce great um, environments for people to work, uh, working closely with the priorities of those communities. 
but not in all cases is that helpful in the context of kind of creating more sustainable impact and growth. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, And I feel like you kind of started speaking to design a little bit. um, And I'm curious about like what processes you equip designers with to like really shift towards a circular economy. The way that we practice design is as a catalyst, as in like a catalyst to actually solve some of these biggest issues. So when most businesses talk about climate, sustainability, circularity, they talk about them in the context of operations. And what we do is we talk about them first and foremost in the context of people, right? So we have been championing, we've been pioneering human-centered design for a long time. Ultimately, these are people challenges. The climate affects the people living on the planet, making up those systems, and we're experts in those people. So as I mentioned before, some of those practices are about thinking about solutions from the context of designing with and designing for the people closest to the issues, but also seeking to really understand those experiences beyond the kind of analytical way of looking at the system to really think about what motivates people in the context of the type of behavior change that we're trying to inspire. So if I take a very practical example, I think about, you mentioned um, in the introduction, some of the work that we've been doing with H&M, which we're incredibly proud of, what they have been trying to do, and they have long been a leader in the context of sustainability, so it's it's a great um, pleasure to be working with them, but they've been looking to not simply affect what that organization is doing and reduce plastic from their packaging, for example, or, or create a more um, efficient supply chain from the standpoint of waste management because of inventory, better inventory management, but they're actually looking to make an impact on the industry. And so when they're looking at solutions, the types of practices that designers will take is not simply what is the best solution when it comes to plastic repackaging, for example, but it's actually what is the impact on the employees who are going to be working on developing some of these solutions? How are they adopting entrepreneurial mindsets? Uh, so that they can do more of this problem solving themselves. Again, less reliant on third parties, more around enabling those organizations to remain as competitive as possible, working towards the kind of ongoing sustainable solutions. So as I say, it's really a question of kind of using design as a catalyst to ask the right questions and then to identify solutions through experimentation that take into account all of the various actors within the systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like the point about like thinking about who's going to be actually implementing the solutions is mm-hmm. like so important just because they need to be able to know like what the goals are, like what are they actually getting to, like what are they working toward. Um, and I feel like the people lower on the rung of work are typically the ones who are doing making the actual changes in companies. Um yeah. I would say that's true. And, and we're in an age of employee activism too, right? So employees are demanding. They're not simply talking about wanting to have purpose at work, but they're actually demanding the opportunity to understand how their role, their day-to-day connects to their individual purpose and the ambitions that companies have and now publish. Um, and so that requires them to be a part of the solution in order to champion it. And as you say, to implement it and implementation is not a one and done thing. It's about maintenance and it's about ensuring that there's kind of that network effect amongst the people who are connected to developing, maintaining those solutions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we start talking about your partnership with H&M. Um, I'm curious about like where that partnership stands. Are you all still working with them? Yes, So um, as I say, there is a huge amount of pride for the work that we've done with H&M. And we've been working with them for about about two and a half years now. Um, And originally we partnered with them, we partnered with the COO, um, who then, who is now the CEO. And we were helping them to redesign their packaging system to massively reduce e-commerce waste. And as you uh, so assumably, no, the fashion industry is one of the worst uh, to pollute these days. And so when we were looking at some of their particular nuances, you know, the garment production had doubled since 2000 and they were using more and more plastics because it just multiplied in, in conjunction with that uh, garment production. And they really wanted to reverse this trend and they wanted to not simply eliminate plastic from their packaging, but actually think about what's the capability, the internal capability to rapidly prototype and test sustainable solutions, firstly in packaging and then beyond. So in in the case of what we were trying to do, because this is, we're really talking about organizational transformation, 
is we start with what we call a beacon project, an opportunity to really demonstrate that tangible change. And in so doing, we're developing an internal capability, which is called the H&M uh, Group Design Studio, and uh, just an incredible group of people who are all committed to these types of changes and work very much across their sustainability pillars, whether that's across some of their customer experience aspects or circular economy aspects. And so we started with this new paper packaging system, helping the company and its customers ultimately kind of see how they were living up to their promise around their sustainability goals. And the two things that I thought were particularly interesting and that kind of gave us permission to continue to work with them on some of these other areas, some very kind of key areas with regards to inclusive design, some very key areas in, in regards to circular economy, um, was that they ended up using a paper production system that uses 97% renewable energy. And through shipping what is now 100 million different packages this year, they managed to eliminate 2,000 tons of plastic from the packaging that had been shipped. So all of a sudden you've got this new industry standard. You don't just have a new practice within the organization, but you've got a new standard that also gives the H&M studio an opportunity to start tackling other problems. And as I said, across circularity, diversity and inclusion, supply chain, customer experience. So it's, it's a pretty tight knit relationship that we have, but again, with the aim of leveraging the strengths that the organization has and us complementing them by supporting the behaviors, the mindsets, the practices um, associated with this, with design so they can scale that capability internally and do more of this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Scale is an important thing. So I feel like when reading news about sustainability efforts, I'm always like, is it enough? <laughs> so I'm curious about, and maybe this is a question for not just your partnerships with H&M, but just generally, like, I'm curious about from those beacon mm -hmm. projects, how do they mm -hmm. get to a point where it's like, taking over the company's entire work. Um, so like eliminating yeah. all the plastic if possible. This is such a tough question because it's an I have an unpopular response to this, which is that you have to slow down to speed up. So mm -hmm. one of the things that we've learned by working with H&M is that when we move too quickly, we're moving at a pace that is faster than the rest of the organization, because this is a team that is working very differently to how the rest of the legacy organization is working. And so we started with this one beacon project, but it led to five beacon projects, each of which is developing through kind of a delivery cycle, a design and delivery cycle that starts with identifying the vision, then going through a discovery process to really understand the people who are involved and how they are affected and what the historical context is that leads them to be affected in that way. And therefore what role H&M can play to then moving into an alpha phase, which is when we would test hypotheses in the real world with real people, thinking about all the various partners who need to be involved internally and externally. And then we start launching at different levels of scale with different segments. And that process has to exist in every case when they're launching new solutions for two reasons. One, you get to evidence progress within the organization, which is how some of these mindsets shift, which is how you get the pull from other parts of the organization that say, hang on, I want to do more of this. Or how can we apply some of that thinking and progress in my area of the business? And that's what's happening with regards to customer experience, with regards to uh, new product development, with regards to uh, some of the supply chain innovations, but also because otherwise we're just talking. And I'm finding that so many organizations are doing a fabulous job identifying what they should do but then, as I say, they're really stuck on how to get started. And so starting would be the first thing. And then making sure that they're not trying to do too much at once because you'll dilute the efforts. And to your point around scale, scale requires an incredible amount of rigor uh, to do it right. And, and you often have to sacrifice that if you do too much too quickly. Mm -hmm, definitely. It's like you want to get the solutions right. So let's yes. like start small yes. first. And yeah. that process of experimentation helps you get to that. So the experimentation is also about scale. You can start to kind of roll things out as you start to prove or disprove hypotheses and pivot. Mm -hmm. So we're coming up on the end of our time and I've enjoyed talking, talking with you. Um, so I think I just want to ask you one last question, which is, are there any calls to listeners who are often a lot of corporate sustainability folks um, about how they can kind of make circular economy a reality in their companies? I think there's probably a few things that I would say in this. Number one is to, 
you know, everybody says this, but none of this can be done alone, right? The reason we work with H&M is because there's an opportunity for us to bring our networks and our expertise to complement theirs and to work together, convening people uh, with the right strengths in order to be able to achieve more. Uh, so that's the first thing is I think organizations need to be comfortable enough to push aside their ego and to look beyond themselves and their capabilities. The second thing is, is that it is about developing a capability. Uh, it is about looking at the challenge differently, and it is about having an openness to what you don't know as much as you do, which is very much the designer's mindset, optimism, collaboration, those types of things. Um, and the third thing I would say is to just get started. You're not going to learn unless you get started and identifying whether it's low hanging fruit or, you know, the gnarliest problem that you have, right sizing that so you're thinking big but starting small. It's a, a real principle of design and frankly, one of the best ways that I can see for organizations to start to apply these types of principles and uh, in their world and in their work. Amazing. Emily, thank you so much for chatting with me. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Great pleasure. Thank you so much, Diana. All right, listeners, you've been hearing from Emily Coker, who is a partner at IDL London. Thank you again, Emily. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. And while you're over there, check out our free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, your questions, and tips. Our address, 350 at greenbiz.com. Thanks to Dylan Siegler for joining me this week. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Makersite. Analyze emissions from the deep tiers of your supply chain and understand how you can optimize your products and supplier base to reach net zero. For more information, please visit makersite.io. And this episode is sponsored by Meta. Check out their third annual sustainability report that just launched. It shares progress towards their net zero 2030 goal and how they're working with supply chain and platform partners to create a better reality. For more information, please visit sustainability.fb.com.